listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Welcome to the Breakfasters podcast. Highlights from our second week, the 29th of February to the 4th of March. Among other things this week, we spoke to Patrick Honan from the Bioblitz Base Camp about collecting stuff from the tops of trees. And Geraldine told us about when she met Missy Elliott. This is a pretty exciting time. <laughs> uh, we also discussed um, pill testing and the resignation of Joe Bullock, and I was very happy about that. Uh, and also, something else I was very excited about was when um, Ron Whitaker came in with a diamondback python and mm. talked all things snakes and crocodiles. May have been the highlight of our week. Yes. Uh, Sarah, Jeff, did I tell you about the time that I met Missy Elliott? No. Do you want to hear about it? Yes, we please. Do want to hear about it. All right, I'll tell you. So <laughs> years ago, I used to work when I first moved to Melbourne. I I worked at the casino. I'm so sorry. And really? um, hang, on, hang on, back it up. What were you doing at the casino? In the you know the video game arcade place there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I worked there. Uh, and then years ago when Missy was on her tour, she was in Melbourne, she was staying at the casino and she was quite um, a fan of the Super Shot, you know, that basketball game? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Loved I didn't know it. anyone ever played that. What? What are you talking it's, it's one of the best. Anyway, okay. I will move on. <laughs> so she would come down because I would do the day shifts quite often and she would come down during the day with her entourage, had a couple of dances and stuff, and they'd stand there and they'd play this basketball game the whole time. It makes me so happy. <laughs> it's, it was so did, great. Did she win anything? Yeah, yeah, she, but it didn't matter because she could have whatever she wanted because <laughs> the management were like, just give her anything. She can play whatever she wants. She, if she wants something, just give it to her. I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, but there was like a bunch of school kids there and they were like, you know, hanging around just trying to get close. And she just went, like there was kids trying to play next to her. And she just went and got all the basketballs out of all the other games and put them in, in <laughs> so no one else can play. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> and then, but these kids were like, you know, they weren't, they couldn't play those games anyway. They, their cards didn't work on that machine. And I was like, guys, guys, come here, come here. And they're like, well, is that, is that Missy Elliott? Is that Missy? And I'm like, yeah. But act cool, man. Like, just <laughs> don't Stop be all. Out. Yeah, just go watch it from a distance. Go over there. So she was like, you know, big props to me for getting rid of the school kids. <laughs> and then we had this flight simulator machine where, you know, it was similar to, I don't know if you remember the Batman ride. In, um, oh, yeah, on, yeah. 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 So you just get in the thing and it moves around. So she wanted to go on that and her dancers. Two of her dancers were like, they came over to me and they were like, oh, Missy wants to go on this ride. And I'm like, yeah, cool, come on over. And then she was going up. I'm like, are you going to come on too, like the, to the dancers? And they're like, oh, no, no, we're too scared. No, 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 we don't want to do it. And I'm like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's good. She can't go on it on her own. Like, and she goes, yeah, come on, come on the ride, come on the ride. And then they get up and then I have to do the safety talk. And I said, um, <laughs> I said, okay, you'll notice that there's no seat belts or anything on this ride. So basically what it does is just spins around really, really fast and gravity will just keep you in your seat. And these two dancers just went, oh, God, no, no way. Oh. <laughs> Oh my god no and then missy slapped her thigh and screamed and laughed and she just went she's kidding man she's kidding i'm like yeah i am kidding we high-fived and they sat down and it was the greatest moment of my life you're listening to the best bits of the breakfasters from three triple r media segment i want to just start with um 
overnight it was uh, Joe Bullock, the Labor senator from WA, has resigned due to uh, his views being different to that of the Labor Party. On any particular issue? Yes, on marriage equality, because he doesn't agree with it. So uh, don't let the door hit you on the <laughs> way out, champ. See ya. See ya. I was just looking on Wikipedia to catch up on the career of uh, Joe Bullock. Uh, I, I was mentioning off air, is also spoke at the National Conference of the Australian Monarchist League and is notorious for turning his back on a welcome to country ceremony. So just a all-round winner. What a good guy. What a yeah. See you later, yeah. Joe Bullock. Uh, yeah, I don't think it'll be a great loss. I always find it funny when these people make headlines. Like, probably no one's paid attention to him for most of his career and now he's like, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. I'm going to end up on the front <laughs> cover because I'm going to make a stand and do nothing about it. Yeah. It's kind of um, interesting, though, how much sentiment shifted in the Labor Party, isn't it? That would have been the mainstream Labor position 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And now... Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he's, like, you just can't cap- just keep up, mate. Come on, <laughs> just, just shovel them out, shovel all those guys out. I just, Come I, on. I don't understand. Like, obviously, as as a gay person, I really want marriage equality. Just because I, I just want equality. I don't want to get married. It's not about me wanting to get married at all. It's just about. I think it's too late for for my generation now. But it's more about the future children. Like, I want you know future gay kids to you know kids to grow up and see that it to be a normal thing like, oh why, why is this an why is this an issue like and I just I don't understand like any argument that people have with me over marriage equality like I just I or it's it's like I'll just refer you to the Declaration of Human Rights and Article 16. And in the future marriage equality will be seen as a normal thing and Joe Bullock will be seen as some kind of weird freak. He is a Neanderthal man. Mm. Yes, and in other media news, not that I don't want to speak about Joe Bullock all day, but I think we've given given it enough. In more Joe Joe Bullock. Um, So it's been proposed that a pill testing system for illegal drugs that would be taken as, let's say, party drugs, Mm. um, it's been proposed by a doctor in Sydney that he's going to set up an illegal pill testing program at festivals this year. Um, This is in response mainly to the New South Wales government's kind of approach to, I suppose, illegal drug taking at festivals in New South Wales. There was a number of high-profile deaths this year over the summer festival season um, that were related to taking drugs, so whether it be ecstasy or MDMA, but kind of party drugs, and they were all in festival environments. And the response from the government and the police in New South Wales has been, we're not going to try and do any harm minimisation. It's all kind of sniffer dogs arresting you, these kind of like hardcore crackdowns. And... There's been a push by a number of groups in New South Wales to introduce pill testing, which was um, trialled in a lot of the kind of Nordic countries, I want to say. So I think Denmark and a few other countries, I don't know if that's... <laughs> but that kind of area of the yep. world where they're a little bit more liberal and has had um, major success in bringing down um, deaths associated with and harm associated with any kind of recreational drug taking. So the idea would be what, there'd be a tent or a stall or something like that where you, if you had some substances you were going to take, you would go up and they would say, yes, it is what it says. Yes, absolutely. And it would be run by medical professionals. So uh, the key here being that you'd have a doctor 
reading the results and being able to tell you exactly what these kind of chemicals were and what the effect they'd be having on your body would be um, and obviously to ensure that there was nothing in there that you didn't expect to be in there. This uh, doctor who's proposing it, Dr Alex Wodak, started the first um, uh, like legal yeah, kind of shooting houses for heroin. Uh, yeah. drug liberalisation campaign. Yeah, so he, and he's part of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation. He's proposed what's kind of, I suppose, slightly controversial about what he's proposing though is that he's saying he wants to do it regardless of whether the police give him permission to do it. So This Sydney Morning well, Herald piece is talking about large-scale civil disobedience and mass arrests to enable this to take place, which would be extraordinary. It would be extraordinary, but I have a feeling the way that the sentiment is in New South Wales right now that it's going to take something like this. Like yeah. It's going to take this kind of civil action, I suppose, to make them budge on this issue because the police and uh, Mike Bard Baird, Baird, Mike Baird, uh, no surprises have said there's a no-go. This is like this is never going to happen in our state. What, what about in Victoria? Is there any is there any discussion of it here? Um, I know that the Rainbow Serpent Festival, which is Victorian-based, had said they would be interested in introducing that if it got the permission of kind of all the stakeholders that would be involved, the same as Stereosonic is the major kind of EDM festival that takes place around Australia. The organisers have said they're um, supportive of this move, but they want it to be legal. They don't, I, don't, I don't know that the, the festival organisers want it happening illegally what, in uh, any way. What Are the police worried? What are they worried about? Like just that well, there'll be an increase of people taking drugs? The way that or? they see it, it's condoning drug use. So they, I, I guess... The police have zero tolerance approach to drug use. It's right. like you yeah. you take drugs; it's, it is illegal. Therefore, you shouldn't be able to bring them into a festival and test them legally. That's their kind of that's their line. I mean, I guess if people were getting them tested legally, you, the cops really wouldn't be able to arrest anyone, would they? No, I mean, that's it would a sort thing. of defeat the purpose of it, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah, but they're kind of at this standoff with one another, and I just wonder where this is going to end up. I think it's fascinating. I don't think we've seen this situation. It's almost like a kind of complete paradigm shift in people's attitudes to drugs, isn't it? I mean, I think this would be such a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason for people to die taking drugs that they don't know what's in them, no reason. Absolutely. And there's, um, there was recently a poll done on the music website In The Mix and uh, obviously like a youth kind of website, but 20,000 people was were pro-pill testing and 700 people were anti-pill testing. I think that also shows the kind of generational shift as well. Like this is something that young people want. So people want to take recreational drugs mm. safely. They don't want to be doing it and risking their lives. I think that it seems like they're going to do it. They're just going to do it, so let's make it more safe. Yeah, rather than having them stuff them down their mouths before, you know, because they see a sniffer dog, dog at the yeah. entrance. So there you go. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Patrick Honan is the manager of live exhibits at Museum Victoria. He just survived near-death experience on his bicycle to come in to talk to us <laughs> about Melbourne Bioblitz Face Camp. Welcome to Triple R, Patrick. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. So this Saturday, scientists are going into the treetops uh, in the Carlton Gardens. What are you hoping to find? Uh, anything that's up the tree, really. Um, even the, the trees that we get around... Uh, inner city Melbourne and the CBD have a whole lot of life in them from the uh, small bugs that infest the outer canopy, uh, particularly around Carlton Gardens, uh, powerful owls, um, flying foxes and other bats, uh, tawny frog mouths, booble cows, all sorts of things that people don't realise are there unless they go and look for them. 
So how will this happen? You'll be up in a cherry picker, is, is that right? Sort of combing through the leaves to see what you find? That's right. We, uh, it's actually part of uh, 24 Hours Bio Blitz starting tomorrow, uh, Friday at 5pm at, at Westgate Park and finishes um, on the plaza uh, outside Melbourne Museum. The, the, the tree climbing base camp goes from 10am to 5pm but there's 24 or 25 events over 24 hours um, and, the, and the base camp is the longest one. Um, so we'll have a cherry picker there and entomologists in particular going up and tree climbers and collecting samples, bringing them back down and we'll have a few marquees there with examples of live animals that you'll find um, all around the city of Melbourne, um, examples of dead animals in the museum's collection that you used to find around here uh, and there'll be um, microscopes and TV screens and we're just sorting through what we find. Uh, will the punters uh, be going up in the tree as well or will they be waiting down the bottom to see what you bring back for them? Uh, there'll be various people going up, probably not punters because of the <laughs> oh and no, yeah. issues that we have these days, but they can certainly stand back and watch and uh, participate in sorting the samples and, and, and going through the findings. Is there any particular animal slash creature that you uh, really want to find? Well, we're putting bird recorders up in the tree tomorrow night, so we'll have uh, records of, of what happened up there overnight mm -hmm. and on Saturday morning. Um, I guess a tree like that, um, unless it's flowering, what you're going to find is a lot of insects that live on the leaves. Okay. Um, things like uh, lerps and psyllids and all those sorts of things, little, little insects, but also uh, flying insects that come in, particularly if trees like that are flowering. And there's a few trees flowering at the moment and that's what really draws in the birds and the insects. Mm. How, how many um, animals are you anticipating to find? Well, we did a bioblitz in 2014 with the City of Melbourne and... There was over 500 animal species found within the city of Melbourne. And a, a, again, with the insects, it's about 70% of them were new, hadn't been recorded. In, in Do you think you'll find more new or...? Absolutely, yes. Uh, with insects, uh, there's a lot more there than you think, so we're always going to find more. But there's also uh, species coming and going. And, and one of the aims of the BioBlitz is to see changes over time. So mm. animals in general, birds, insects, uh, even mammals, uh, can migrate into the city uh, or migrate out. And so there's interactions between various species. So birds that come in that are particularly bolshy might push out other native birds. Mm. Um, and that applies not only to pest species but also native species. So a as birds move around and insects, they tend to displace ones that are there before them, particularly the aggressive species. And, and Can I just ask you what's an example of an aggressive species of bird? Uh, things like uh, bell miners or noisy miners oh, yeah. that move around in, in flocks. Um, uh, butcher birds and carawongs can be quite um, aggressive to other birds. So it, it's, a, it's a way of monitoring and hopefully managing those sort of species. But also as habitat changes, species will come and go. So it's good to keep an eye on the species that are there and then have a think about why they're increasing or decreasing and whether their habitat needs to be managed, you know, whether there needs to be more flowering plants, whether there needs to be more of a particular type of plant species or more corridors of plants for animals to move around. Uh, the kind of creatures you're going to find, would they be visible to most people or do you need a special skill set to identify all the insects in a tree? 
Some of them are highly cryptic or camouflaged, so you need to know what you're looking for. Uh, but the key is that um, you just need to get out there and look. And, and the Bioblitz um, culminates in the Backyard Bioblitz, which goes from the 3rd of March to the 1st of April, and that's when everyone's encouraged to get out in their own backyards and see what's there. And particularly on a warm summer or now autumn night, um, you'd be surprised when you go out and have a look what you, mm. what you see out there. Um, people don't really know what's out there when they're sitting inside watching the telly, but when you go out there, it's pretty amazing what a metropolis as big as, this, as Melbourne can host. Yeah. You're also an expert on spiders, and I'll be honest, I see some spiders and it freaks me out at times. And is there... Like at the moment, um, at a, we've got a house out at the beach and we've got particularly large huntsmen's... Yeah out there um do you have any sorry any recommendations on how to not have large huntsmen's jumping (laughs) on my shoulder while i'm doing the dishes for arachnophobes uh, huntsmen's is the number one enemy Mm. um i run arachnophobia courses and we do surveys of people that participate and out of the hundreds of people we've had, we asked them what's their worst fear, and every single one has, has said huntsmen's. And they're, they're fairly harmless overall. It's, yes. it's the way they move and the way they look that people really hate. Um, and they're also, the reason they move the way they do is because they're used to living under bark, so they've got really flat bodies. And because they're so flat, their legs have to move in a particular way, mm. which also means that they can get through the smaller spaces. So they can get under your door. And get through cracks in windows. Under the toilet I, I think you're seat. probably freaking people out. <laughs> no, I was actually, the back of my neck was just beginning to like tingle a little bit as you were saying that. They can get in three eaves into your ceiling space and then drop down on you while you're Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, Don't know about answering her question or, or just freaking her out more. Uh, so it's, well, I guess my point is that it's really hard to keep them out. Right. One thing you can do is cut away branches from the eaves. That's uh-huh. a common way of getting in. Um, and you can, uh, there have been people who tape up every single crack right. in the windows and doors and have to untape whenever they leave the house and retape when they go I in. Guess, That's a bit extreme. I guess I'll just, I'll just get used to it, I think. Well, the, uh, they're always going to be here. Mm. The, the key is to learning to live with them because there really is no other way. Um, in Australia, particularly around Victoria, Melbourne, they're always going to be there. It's how you respond. And, and if you can manage how you respond, then that solves the problem. So if I stay calm, it will be calm? The spider's a lot more afraid of you than... Yeah. ..and so on. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they come into houses because it's quite a good environment for them. There's, there's, again, there's more insects in your house than you think, so there's lots of food for them. They're, they're protected from predators, they're protected from extremes of weather. Mm. So they will keep coming in. Um, if, if you can get to the stage where you or someone can put a glass over them and a cardboard underneath and take yeah, them Yeah, I'm, I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, maybe, uh, Geraldine, you need to get along to a bio-blitz, become yeah. more familiar with uh, the creatures that you might find. That seems, just from my quick look at the program, it seems like a lot of stuff on. There's a Ponds Life 101... There is. That's at Royal Park tomorrow night. Uh, there's a marine walk tomorrow at Westgate Park. Um, it's, it's a general survey of everything around Melbourne. So there's birds, uh, bats, insects, aquatic, marine, all sorts of things. So are you encouraging people to go... People can just sign up for individual... individual. If they're into ponds, they can go to the ponds one. If they're into trees, they can go to the trees one. Yep, they're all free. 
Um, you can go to as many as you like, but you'd need to register because some of them are getting booked out. Um, if you if you type in uh, BioBlitz Melbourne into your search engine, it should take you straight there. Excellent. We've been talking to Patrick Conan. He's the manager of live exhibits at Museum Victoria. Uh, the BioBlitz base clamp. Base clamp. Base camp. <laughs> on this Saturday. not to clamp you there. <laughs> yeah, there'll be no clamping on this, this Saturday in the Carlton Gardens. Thank you very much, Patrick, for coming along. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Ron Whitaker travels the world studying and protecting reptiles and amphibians. He's the founder of the Madras Snake Park as well as the Madras Crocodile Bank Trust. He's here in Melbourne for the 2016 Reptile and Amphibian Expo. It's with great pleasure that we bring him into the Triple R studio as well as a bag containing, uh, well, we don't know what it contains. Welcome to Triple R. <laughs> well, I wish it was a king cobra, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not really that sad. It's not a king cobra. Um, I think it's probably fair to say opinions are divided about reptiles, particu- particularly snakes, those who love them, those who hate them. How did you become interested in them? That is kind of a difficult question to answer because I was so young. I, I don't even remember, but uh, my mother took pictures of me when I was about four years old holding snakes, and she was a rare type of mother who said, wow, what a beautiful animal. And uh, from then on, it was just love at first sight. Yeah, I don't know too many mothers that would hand her four-year-old child a snake going, <laughs> yeah, just pose for a photo. So. Well, I... Yeah, well, I was lucky. I was in northern New York State where there were no venomous snakes. So I think uh, it's just that when we moved to India, she said, I think she was thinking twice then because that was the land of cobras. Well, I was going to say, so one of your subjects of expertise is the king cobra, probably the zenith of snakes, maybe the most iconic snake that there, there, there could be. So how, how, how did that um, particular interest happen? Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's the the snake of snakes, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, cobras are fascinating enough, and by themselves, the fact that they sit up and look at you, you know, very very intelligently. But here's a cobra which grows to close to 15 feet long. Wow. You, know, I mean, you can get up to four and a half, five meters, and uh, it's venomous, of course, but it's a very intelligent snake. It knows that humans are very dangerous, and it usually tries to keep out of people's way. And I think that's what people don't understand. They just look at this very deadly, or think about this very deadly, potentially horrible snake that could bite you. But the snake really wants to just keep away from people. So I, I'm, I'm its, you know, prominent defender. Now, yeah. so. Australia kind of prides itself on having all of these venomous snakes, you know, the brown, the king brown and the, mm. and the red belly black snake. Uh, where does the king cobra come in terms of, um, I suppose, ven- the venom scale or the... Yeah, the, the toxicity yeah. of venom, it it's, doesn't come anywhere near some of the Australian snakes. Oh, OK. You're, you're very lucky to have some <laughs> of <those. laughs> So lucky. So very lucky. So where does, the, where does the fear of the cobra come from, though, this kind of... It's a it's a kind of love hate relationship in India as well. I mean, it's uh, it, it's actually very much a big part of Hinduism. It's a very big part of religion in India. Cobras are worshipped, and the king cobra, kind of being at the top of the cobra scale, is definitely worshipped. And that helps from the conservation standpoint. When we're trying to do something to protect cobras, it's almost already there. You know, people are already quite okay with the fact that cobras are around. Well quite okay but uh, they still call us when when one comes in the house they still try to get it they want it to get it out of the house what are some of the threats to the conservation for the king cobra 
Yeah, right now it's the loss of rainforest. Right. The whole western side of India is called the Western Ghats along the coast, and uh, we've lost about 80% of that forested area there. Mm. And that's very, very serious, not only for king cobras, but for anything that's related mm. to that forest, the birds and so many other reptiles and amphibians. And how did you move from cobras uh, to crocodiles? Uh, yeah, um, that started because uh, I, I, I first read some reports, this is back in the early 70s, that crocodiles were going extinct in India, and I, I, I didn't really know much about it. And uh, so I started doing survey work. The World Wildlife Fund was just beginning in India at that time, and I got this magnificent grant of 5,000 rupees, which in those days was a lot of money. And uh, I managed to cover a lot of the North Indian states in particular for a crocodile which is called the gharial. It's a long-snouted, fantastic-looking creature, very, very different from any other croc in the world. And we came to the conclusion that there were probably a hundred or maybe just a hundred and fifty animals left in the wild. Is that, was sorry, that a sorry. result of, yeah, sorry, the bag is moving and we feel like <laughs> maybe you should open it up. Rom, Rom, just so people know, Ron brought in a little friend today and it's in a bag in the studio. The bag is wriggling around somewhat and, disconcertingly. And, yeah. Well, is that, were they poaching the crocodiles? Were they killing the crocodiles yeah. for the skin? And yeah, it, it, they were being shot to death. The eggs were being collected and eaten by people. And uh, the rivers were being changed very, very drastically, dammed and diverted. So there was a lot of, a, a lot of pressure against the animal, and that's why it, it went, right. almost went extinct. But you saved them. Sorry. Did you save them? Well, I don't think I saved them, <laughs> but I, I certainly was one of their publicists, and yeah. I, I did a lot to help bring them back. Speaking uh, of being a publicist, oh, Rob is now is stunning. Bringing out um, a rather disconcertingly large snake which well, is um this is a diamond python it's one of australia's oh, most beautiful snakes it really is and one of the most gentle of all the snakes uh, don't get me wrong uh, he's got teeth and he's capable of biting but uh since uh it's a snake that is actually often oh, desired as a pet and people do keep them as pets he's also he's um wrapping himself around rom's arm in a way that I've learnt means that the snake wants to choke you, but that's not the case, no, is it? No, it's He's just a just... security thing. Okay. He's hanging on as though I, I'm a tree like branch, a branch as far as mm. he's concerned. They're great climbers and they're very often in trees. Yeah. Do you mind if I be a tree branch? Oh, not at all. Ah. He's very cool, as you'll see. I wish um, that everyone could see this, but we will put up some pictures and a little video as well uh, so I'm people not sure can see I can what's going on. At the same no. <laughs> if I just hold my arm out straight, he will just... Yeah. You can see it's so beautiful, and it's yeah, you're right. It's cool to touch, mm -hmm. and it's so smooth and lovely. It's got such a. Do you feel, a, do you feel scared moving. holding it? Yes, I'm terrified. Are you really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, no, you're yeah. Terrified. You look very. But I'm uh, trying to be really brave. So, so, <laughs> okay, so, so this exhibition. Uh, a lot of people going there will be snake fanciers or snake owners. Or what? Can can you actually develop a relationship, like a, a domestic relationship with a snake? I mean, does that snake know you as its owner? Well, right now, uh, when the snake, when you first have a snake, he's you're kind of both learning uh, the way of, of each other, and the snake does eventually get to know you for sure. The the thing is, they have a different. Uh, they're almost like a, a, an animal from another planet, you know, but they have a very different way since they can't uh, hear anything for one thing. They're, they're, 
their whole intelligence level is a very different thing from, from the average mammal pet that you have, your dog or your cat. You can't sort of say, come on, and that kind of thing. C- can it show affection? I think so. I think so. There was um, something in the news recently in Australia, which is slightly embarrassing. I don't know if I should raise it, but it was a man carried his apparently pet snake down to the water and took, um, it, for took it for a swim. And he had, he had a drink and he was kind of throwing the snake and then the snake was swimming back to him and then he'd throw the snake again. And the, our, the animal welfare people in Australia have since come out and said that snake wasn't playing with him, that snake was really scared of the water and was trying to get <laughs> trying out to get of the out. water. Yeah. Can you have that kind of relationship with a snake? Was it plausible that he was playing with his snake in the water or do you think that was just a terrified snake? Uh, it, perhaps not a terrified snake, but he, yeah, he was definitely out of his element and yeah. he wanted to get back onto dry land. That was probably the best explanation. He wasn't playing running and going with yeah. it, yeah. yeah. So, so if someone, people listening, want to start thinking about getting a snake as, as a pet, is there a big kind of leap? I imagine it's like a, there's a bit more... T- <laughs> it's quite dis- disconcerting. <laughs> I mean, you know, only a cat or a dog is one thing, isn't it? Is there a particular set of skills that you have to have to, in order to, you know, keep a snake alive and safe and healthy? I would say so, but the people who are uh, selling snakes, for example, are the people to talk to, and uh, there are certainly books on it and that kind of thing, but there's nothing like getting a hands-on experience. They are a fascinating animal, whether you like them or you don't like them. They're, and then, and as you can see from the, the beauty of some of them, it's just incredible. They've got a wide range of colour and pattern, which... Uh, are really sensational. It really does make a difference to actually uh, hold the snake in terms of your your fear of it. Like definitely. it's definitely like I I really am quite scared of snakes. In like it, uh, there's a lot of anxiety. My heartbeats, you know, increase and stuff. But but just actually holding it really does just calm all that down. Also, so it's also kind of seeing it in this environment is really interesting. If I saw that snake in the wild, I would be so scared my instinct would be to either not try and hurt it or to get a probably get away from it i'd mm-hmm. imagine and it's interesting seeing it calmly kind of <laughs> wrapping itself around someone's arm it just yeah. looks suddenly it's taken on this whole other personality yeah yes well, I, I think your point about touching it and feeling it is, is is a really good one because when a child gets to touch a snake suddenly the fear very often mm. will disappear right away. Yeah. And feel, my gosh, it, it well, feels spe- so lovely. Speaking of which, if children do want to touch or feel a snake, the Reptile and Amphibian Expo is on this Saturday from the Melbourne Showgrounds. That's, That's a whole right. day full of events. That's right. And um, you're also speaking, Romulus, at um, a dinner tonight at the Melbourne uh, Zoo. At the zoo, exactly. Yeah. So that be... you can come, please do. <laughs> if, you, if you actually log on to the... Uh, Victorian Herpetological Society, and you can find out the details. I'd love to meet you tonight. Yeah, great. And if you want to get to Rom, get to know Rom as well, he's done a TEDx talk in the past, so you can also go and kind of jump online and, and check that out and get Please to know do. a Please little do. bit more about what you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thanks very much for coming. I hope you get a chance to check out some Australian uh, snakes during your trip. I have already. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> tiger snakes and copperheads yesterday. It was a thrilling experience. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Rob. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.